Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you, open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John. 1 John. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a white paperback Bible under one of the chairs in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 592. 1 John's near the end of the New Testament, right before Revelation. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, thank you, Jesse, for your report on the marketing team. Just want to remind you again what we're doing here. We're having uh, the various leaders of our ministry teams come up one Sunday at a time and just let you know a little bit about what their team is doing and to express to you the needs that they have. We want as many people as possible here to be involved in the ministry teams. That's where uh, the majority of the work and ministry of this church takes place is through those teams, a lot of activity, spirit-filled, kingdom-advancing activity uh, goes on kind of behind the scenes. A lot of us don't see that, and uh, just want to make sure that, that you can see that and hear about what God is doing through these teams. So we're going to continue this in the coming Sundays. You're going to hear from more of our ministry team leaders. Uh, just keep your ears open for what God might be calling you to do in service to this church. So we here at New Life are going through a sermon series on uh, 1 John, moving through this just one passage at a time. And uh, I want to make sure that we don't kind of miss the forest for the trees here. I want to make sure that we understand the context, uh, where we are in this book. We celebrated Easter, of course, last week. So uh, it's been two weeks since we've been here. So again, just a little review, just so we can get the bird's eye view of, of where we are here in First John. You might recall, I've been telling you uh, Sunday after Sunday about these diagnostic tests that John has been giving to us in chapter 2 primarily, tests given to us to um, uh, examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith, to see whether we're really Christians. And he gave us uh, some moral tests. Uh, do we have a desire to obey God and submit to his word? And he gave us a social test. Do we have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? And then he gave us doctrinal tests. That is, who do we say Jesus is? Do we receive him as Savior, Son of God, Messiah, the one who is fully human and fully divine? And along with that doctrinal test came uh, this realization that false teachers were coming into the church and they were presenting a different kind of Savior. And so John was kind of warning them uh, about these false teachers. And that's kind of where we left off, those who are trying to deceive you. We took two sermons to talk about that. And now, as we get close to chapter 3 here, it's like John is perhaps maybe uh, developing a concern. It's like John is a, a pastorally sensitive writer. And, and, and I think what John is beginning to think as he starts moving into chapter 3 here is that, you know, there might be some people hearing what I'm saying and reading what I'm writing who have very sensitive consciences. That there might be people who are hearing what I'm saying, who are very hard on themselves. And when they hear about all these tests, they're thinking, I don't live up to these tests. I can't match these tests. And they begin to doubt their salvation. And they begin to descend into kind of despair and worry. And what John is thinking here is that he knows that his his readers are mostly Christians. And remember, the whole purpose of this sermon series is what? That you may know. What John wants 
to occur in the lives of his readers and in your lives too is he wants you to be encouraged and to be built up and to be assured of your eternal life and the forgiveness of sins that you have in Christ. So John is like, you know what? I mean, I think there might be some people who really are Christians who are wondering if they are or not. And so I want to encourage them. Now, that doesn't mean the doctrinal or the diagnostic tests are bad. It's good that we examine ourselves. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says very clearly, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So it's a very biblical and good thing to do from time to time, to look at our hearts and think, you know, am am I the real thing or not? That's a good thing to do. But, again, what John's primary purpose is in this book is to give us assurance and to give us confidence. And so the the metaphor now that he begins to use as he goes into chapter 3 is that of a family. He begins to speak of the church of God as a family. And he uses this metaphor to encourage and bless us because, really, friends, isn't it true that there is nothing in our lives that is more foundational to a sense of security than a healthy, loving family? Now, some of us maybe weren't brought up in a healthy, loving family, but you have an idea of what a healthy, loving family is like, and it's something that we all long for. We long for an earthly, loving family, and what John is talking to us about here in these passages or these verses, is the reality of a healthy spiritual family as a way of encouraging us that we may know that we have eternal life. So let's stand, and I'm going to read 1 John 2, starting with 28, verse 28, and I'm going to read to chapter 3, verse 3. Sometimes it's kind of hard to know where John you know, picks up and leaves off with the new idea, so we're Ending one chapter and moving into another here. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, it says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Father, we call on you to pour out your Holy Spirit on this place and in this sermon for the benefit of your church and for the sake of your glory. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, what is it to be a child of God? Uh, How is it that we can have this assurance Uh, about being a child of God. This is extremely important for us to understand. Perhaps uh, an aspect of the gospel that we miss, I mean, we hear a lot about justification, uh, redemption that we have in Christ, but another aspect of the gospel is what the theologians call adoption, that we have been adopted into the family of God. 
And a guy named James Packer, or J.I. Packer, he wrote a book many years ago called Knowing God. There's a chapter in there on adoption that is just gold. It's so good. I recommend the whole book to you, in particular this chapter. But Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So this is foundational to what it is to be a Christian, to think of ourselves as children of God. So what does that mean? Three things that I want to show you from this passage. And the first is this. The child of God, first of all, is one who has been converted. One who has experienced conversion. So let me show you this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Here's where John establishes the theme. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So this is clearly John's intent to address this topic of being a child of God. Now we might look at this, though, and ask some questions. What is meant by the pronoun there, we, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. Well, who is we? Who are the children of God? Is everybody a child of God? Everybody who lives on the earth, are we all children of God? I mean, that probably sounds like a fairly familiar phrase because that's what a lot of people say and what a lot of people affirm. In fact, the Pope back in 2016 said, we only have one certainty, and that is this, that we are all God's children. Now, maybe some of you hold to that view. It's an appealing view. It sounds good. Now, if, if the Pope meant, and if people mean by that, that, well, we're all created by God, or, or we're all, you know, accountable to God, I mean, if that's what we mean when we say we're all children of God, well, you know, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll go with you on that, but if by this phrase, we're all children of God, people mean that we are saved by God, that we're accepted by God, that we're all going to heaven one day to be with God, that is something that we cannot affirm. Who, are, who, who is this we who are the children of God? Well, look what um, John says earlier in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God are those who have received Christ as Savior. It's not the case that everybody is a child of God. Um, to refer to an earlier sermon, that's fake news. It's another example of fake news, a message that we hear all the time. But it's not biblical. To be a child of God, we might say, is not to just be born not just to be born into this world as a human being as if every single person is a child of God, it's to be born again. That's what has to happen for you to be a child of God. It's another way of saying being converted. Do you remember John chapter three? John, uh, Jesus is having a discussion with Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader, and Jesus says to Nicodemus very clearly, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. It's another way of saying, unless you're born again, you're not a child of God. You don't believe, you don't belong to me. You're not saved. You're not going to heaven. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
This phrase, born again, another way to refer to this is the new birth or regeneration Regeneration on your own time. Read, read that passage in John 3, uh, 1 through 8, and you'll see more about uh, what Jesus says about this, this uh, phenomena of being born again. F- very important. You know, I said that phrase maybe rubs people the wrong way a little bit. Maybe it sounds a little bit fundamentalist, you know. You don't always like it when someone asks you if you're born again. Um, it was very popular in the 70s. People talked about it a lot, but it's, it's very biblical language, but it's been controversial actually uh, for many years. Back in, uh, in England in the 1700s, um, this whole idea of having to be born again became very controversial because the leaders of the Anglican church in England at the time, in their view, all that was necessary for someone to be born again was to be baptized. If you're baptized as a child, then you're born again. And there's no need for that child to have any kind of experience with God after that. And a guy named George Whitfield came along. George Whitfield, very famous preacher. He came to the United States and preached. He was a household name. I know most of you probably haven't heard of him. He's been called the first American celebrity, actually. George Whitfield, I've mentioned him uh, many times before. Uh, he's a guy who would preach out in fields to as many as 40,000 people without amplification. And he had this amazing voice that could project. Some people say he preached to as many as 80,000 people. Uh, just a famous guy. Everybody knew him. And one of George Whitfield's most pressing points in all of his sermons is you must be born again. He preached the new birth. And the church in America and in England were scandalized by that. They, they couldn't stand it that he was saying this. Now, George Whitfield didn't deny the legitimacy of infant baptism, actually. He, he just said, being baptized doesn't make you born again. And one of his friends wrote a sermon called The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. And so Whitfield and some of his friends started to go after the pastors in the churches at that time, saying, you pastors who are preaching from your pulpits, you're not even born again. And Whitfield said at one point, the reason that so many of our congregations are dead is because dead men are preaching to them. People in pulpits who hadn't been born again. Now that's very possible. Maybe that's a new thought to you. You just think, well, if a guy's a pastor, he's got to be a Christian. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Being a pastor doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is being born again by the Spirit of God. And that's what John is talking about. If you go back to verse 29, look what he says. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There it is. The one who practice, here's the evidence of being born again is to practice righteousness. But the context here is being a child of God. To be a child of God, you must be born again. So how do you know that? How do you know if you've been born again? Now this, this happens differently in different people's lives. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have some dramatic emotional experience, a road to Damascus experience like Paul had where he was blinded. It doesn't mean that you have to have some horrible life of drug addiction and crime and then get changed 
into this born-again believer. It just means that at some point you have to get to a place where you say, you know what, Jesus really is wonderful and great, and I really don't deserve to go to heaven, and I really do need a Savior, and I receive him now. Even though I've been baptized, even though I've been hearing this stuff all my life, if you were brought up in a Christian home, at some point, that has to happen, has to dawn on you. That, what's happening when that happens is the Spirit of God is doing something, changing your heart and causing you to be born again. This is what it is really to be a Christian. We, we might ask this, to be converted to God, to be converted as a Christian, it is to get to the point where you don't see God primarily as an angry judge anymore, but you see him as a loving father. Look what, again, at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. God, this, this is the motive of God's love, is to adopt us into his family, to bring us in, even in spite of all our sin, not because we're good people or because God wants to benefit from us somehow. It's out of love. He loves us, and so he's adopted us. It's like... You know, adoption in the ancient world took place in the time that John was writing, but adoption at that time generally was done by parents who didn't, excuse me, not parents, but by married couples who didn't have children and wanted somebody to come along and perpetuate the family name. And so in ancient times, adoptions were not very often um, done with infants, but with adults who appeared to be able, gifted, talented people, able then to carry on the family name. And so those kinds of people would be adopted to benefit the parents. But that's not the kind of adoption we're talking about here. This is a God who adopts entirely out of love and grace. And J.I. Packer says this, God adopts us out of free love, not because our character and record show us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the very opposite so friends have you been born again have you been born again that's what it is to be a child of God another way to say that you've been converted to Christ the second thing I want to show you what it is to be a child of God is the child of God has conflict there's conflict in the life of the child of God so look at verse 29 again if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, we're, we're going to talk next week about what it is to practice righteousness because like verse 4 through 10, that's all John talks about. So we're going to put that off. I'm going to leave that alone for right now. But I want to point out in this verse uh, an interesting point that John makes here about the question of what really is righteous or what really is moral. That word righteous is just talking about morality, what's right and what's wrong. So how do we know what's right and what's wrong? How do we know what's moral? And look what he says here in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, if you know that God is righteous, then you may um, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so what John is saying here is that righteousness and morality are based on a righteous God, first and foremost. This is how we know what is right. It's who is God? What is God's character like? 
Righteousness flows from him. What is right and what is wrong is based on the character of God. Sometimes we think of God as if he's preparing these laws for us just so he can see us scramble around to try to obey them or like he's setting up an obstacle course for us so he can just you know, kind of laugh and giggle as we fail in all of our attempts to get around all of these obstacles he set up. But no, that's a completely wrong way to look at God's law and morality. Morality flows from the character of God. If you know he is righteous, if you know God is righteous, then you can know what righteousness is when it's practiced by others. Righteousness and morality, it's not, it's, not, it's not something we invent. It's not based on popular opinion. It's not just something arbitrary. It's not something that changes over time depending on how populations want to live. Morality is based on who God has been, is, and will be forever. It springs from the character of God and gives to us a transcendent moral standard that is fixed and will never change. Martin Luther King, we've been hearing a lot about him this past week, the 50th anniversary of his assassination. And one of his uh, famous writings was called Letter from Birmingham Jail. And Martin Luther King was very concerned about unjust laws in America at the time. And in this letter... From Birmingham jail, he writes this. How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. So here's Martin Luther King. His, his whole campaign against racism and discrimination was based on his understanding of the law of God. It wasn't just something he was making up. It wasn't something arbitrary in his mind. He understood that there was a transcendent standard to which all other laws are subject, the law of God. And that's what John is referring to here, righteousness that is based in the righteousness of God. Now, what does all this have to do with conflict? Well, here it is. Look back to chapter 3, verse 1. The end of verse 1. Look what John says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world doesn't know God. And as a result of that, the world does not know God's children. And when you and I as Christians begin to operate and live in the world, we're living in the midst of people who don't understand us. I mean, we are peculiar to the world. That's what John is saying here. The world doesn't know us. The world doesn't understand us. And when the world doesn't understand the way we live and the things we say and the values that we hold, what it can often lead to is the world hating us. And that's exactly what John says here later in verse 13 of the same chapter. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I mean, the world hated Martin Luther King, right? Assassinated him. Certainly the world hated our Savior, our Lord, Jesus, and crucified him. This, this is a distinguishing mark of the child of God. You're living in this world and you just feel out of place. You feel like you don't belong. You, you just feel like you're always in conflict with what the world adores and what the world values. You feel like an outsider. You, you feel like what Bono sang, you know, I, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You, you just feel like this, I, I, this place isn't, this isn't my home. I feel like I, I, I want to go somewhere else. I don't fit here in this world. 
That, that is a distinguishing mark of the child of God. Always in some measure of conflict as you seek to live obediently to God. If that's you, don't take that as a discouraging thing. Don't take that as a, a reason to question whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, if you're experiencing conflict in your place of work and in your neighborhood, that can be a very good sign that indeed you have been born again and you're a child of God. There's a guy named Larry Taunton. I, I've told you about this guy before. He wrote this book called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was a very famous atheist and um, Larry Taunton, a Christian. And so in this book, Larry Taunton is talking about his relationship with Christopher Hitchens and various conversations that they had about the gospel. And in the book, there's this um, point where Larry Taunton is telling Christopher Hitchens about Larry Taunton's family and their desire to adopt a child from the Ukraine. And the child hadn't been adopted yet, and so Larry was saying to Christopher, you know, we're not really sure what's going to happen because a lot of these children in the Ukraine uh, have HIV, they have rickets, they have fetal alcohol syndrome, and so, you know, we're just getting ready for that, but this is what we're going to do, adopt this child. And Larry Taunton said he looked at Christopher Hitchens and he had this, this look of just amazement on his face. And Christopher Hitchens says, you know, I'm thankful for people like you, Larry, but for the life of me, I cannot understand why you would do that. Why would you adopt a child with those problems and those diseases? Why would you bring someone like that into your life? Now, as Christians, we understand, right? We understand why Larry Taunton would want to do that. We understand why people would be filled in their hearts with compassion for children with HIV and rickets and would want to adopt them into their family. Why? Because we've been adopted into the family of God. Because by grace and the love of the Father, he chose us. And we had a problem much worse than HIV or rickets. We had hearts in rebellion against him. We had hearts that hated God. We had hearts that lived as if he didn't exist. And God adopted us in his grace anyway. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to adopt, but it certainly means that as Christians we should fully understand why that would happen. This is just another example of, of conflict. That's why I'm sharing that story with you. Here's Larry Taunton doing what is just instinctive to him as a Christian, adopt a child, and here's the atheist who has no clue, doesn't understand it. It seems peculiar to him. It seems weird. And you know what? That's the way you might appear in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods. As Christians, you might just appear weird. And people are asking you to go out and do something on Sunday morning, maybe, you know, this spring and summer. Come out and play golf with me. It's going to be 75 degrees this Sunday. But, you know, you say, sorry, i got a commitment. i got to be with the people of God. I can't do it. And they look at you and they just, well, okay, whatever. You know, they don't get it. You take a, a week of your vacation and you take it so that you can go overseas on a mission trip somewhere. And people don't understand that. It's your vacation. Why would you give up your vacation to serve people? I mean, much of the world doesn't, doesn't get that, doesn't understand that. You start talking about sexual issues and you say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save myself for my wife or my husband and I'm not going to live with my boyfriend or girlfriend until I get married. And in fact, I think marriage is between one man and one woman. You say things like that 
in this culture, and you're weird, you're peculiar, you're odd, and you're a child of God. That's what it is to be a child of God, to deal with that conflict and to live with that situation. The world does not know us, is what John is saying here at the end of verse 1, chapter 3. And now, one last thing. Another evidence or another, uh, what else it means to be a child of God is the child of God has confidence. Confidence. Confidence for what? Confidence for the biggest day of your life. The biggest day of your life is not in your past. The biggest day of your life is in your future. It's coming. It's judgment day. The last day is the biggest day of your life. And what John tells us is that one of the benefits of being a child of God is you can look forward to that day. Well, let's just read it, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, remain in him, don't give up, so that when he appears, referring to Jesus, when Jesus appears, when he comes again, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, I think for many of us, that's kind of the way we think about facing God on Judgment Day. Like, I I might be shrinking back in shame. (laughs) I mean, I remember growing up when I was a kid, when I would get in trouble of some sort, or I got a bad grade on, on a test, and I knew my dad was coming home at the end of the day. And I would just be filled with dread all day long. And I can still to this day remember the sound of the garage door opening, that electric garage door, just that hum of the motor. And I'd be inside, and it's like, Dad's home. Judgment day. And I just was filled with dread. I would just have this tendency to to shrink back from him. And I think that's the way a lot of people, but what's, what's sad is that I think this is the way a lot of Christians look at Judgment Day. A lot of Christians are dreading it. A lot of Christians are feeling like they have to shrink back from facing God because of the lives they've lived, the things that they've done that they shouldn't have, and the things that they should have done and they haven't had done, they haven't done. But look what it says. I mean, isn't this amazing? Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in his coming. Confidence. Can we just think about that word for a second? Confidence. There's you standing before a holy, majestic, glorious God. You're face to face with him. And you're confident. You're bold. You're not dreading it. You're not shrinking back. You're standing before God without fear. Don't you don't you want that? Don't you want to know that that can be true for you? It can be, not because you're confident that you've done the best you can in your life, not because you're confident that your church service will be sufficient to please God, not because you're confident that you haven't done all the bad things that all these other people have done. No, if your confidence is in any of that, you better be shrinking back because that won't be enough. But if your confidence is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood to turn away the wrath of God, to absorb his condemnation on your behalf. If that's your hope in what he has done and only in what he has done, you you can do it, friends. You can stand before him in confidence. 
on that last day. And you know what that means is you can go before him in confidence today, too. And in every day between now and then, with confidence, going to the throne room of God, pleading with him, loving him, praising him, confessing your sins, communing with him. So what else is going to happen on Judgment Day? Well, John mentions this in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. He talks about the last day again. Beloved, we are God's children now. says it again. I love that too, now, he says. We're, We're God's children now. You know, we're not waiting for some verdict on our performance. We're not waiting for God to determine if we've been good enough to be part of his family. No, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're a child of God right now, right now. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So, you know, there are certain things we, we don't know about Judgment Day and the time when Jesus comes again. We don't know because um, he hasn't appeared yet. What we will be has not yet a- appeared. There's a certain, um, there's many things that God has not revealed to us about that. You know, a lot of questions come to mind when we think of the judgment day. What, what will our resurrected bodies be like? You know, will, will bald people still be bald? And how old will I be? And what will I look like? We have all these questions. They're interesting questions. But the Bible doesn't tell us the answers to these questions. And that's kind of what John is saying here. Um, but one thing we do know according to verse 2, is that we're going to be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus comes again on that last day, we're going to see him, and somehow that that vision of beholding him face-to-face is going to change us, and we're finally going to be like him. And finally, our salvation is going to be complete. And finally, our struggle with sin is going to be over. And finally, the purpose of our salvation, that is we were predestined so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, finally God will be done and you will be everything God intended you to be. Your potential will be absolutely, completely and totally fulfilled at that day. If you're discouraged, you're dealing with certain sins and you can't get on top of it, they keep coming back. They keep discouraging you, and you wonder, am I ever going to get better? Am I ever going to move ahead? Am I ever going to progress? Am I ever going to be different tomorrow than I was yesterday? And the answer is, child of God, yes. One day, you're going to be perfect. Perfect, because you're going to be like him when your salvation is finished. And that's the promise for those who are children of God, and that's what gives us confidence to face him on the last day. Friends, I'm told this. I'm told that in the religion of Islam, there are 99 names for God, and not one of them is Father. That is the distinct privilege of the Christian, the child of God. You might say, well, you know, my relationship with my father wasn't so, so good. I don't know if I really like this idea. You know, maybe your father was absent. Your heavenly father is always present, always with you. Maybe your earthly father was mean. Well, this heavenly father is kind and gentle and patient. Maybe your earthly father didn't know you, didn't take any time to get to know you. Your heavenly father knows you exhaustively, knows a word even before it's on your tongue. Maybe your earthly father didn't do anything for you. Your heavenly father has done everything for you even giving his life in the person of his son, that you might be his child. 
So be encouraged, sons and daughters of the king. We are God's children. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this assurance. Thank you, Father, for encouraging our hearts. Lord, help us to meditate on these things. Father, I pray that our work for you, our service to you, and our worship of you, Lord, would all spring from this great declaration that we are your children by grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen.